a record company friend of ours who knew us both, Tim Dubois, had started uh, Arista here, which Clive Davis, of course, had big Arista with Whitney Houston and all the acts that he discovered. But he wanted a, a country label, so he got Tim to do it. Tim had already had signed a boy singer, Alan Jackson, so he didn't want another solo male artist, but he knew about me and Ronnie both and basically convinced us to see if we couldn't write a song together. And we wrote a band, Brand New Man and Next Broken Heart that week we met and uh, brought him back and he kind of offered us a record deal at that point. It's, it's interesting that you just to step back a couple steps. It's like when, when Tim was putting the, the label together with, with Clive, I mean, he went down the list methodically. We didn't know it at the time. Looking back, it was like a cookie cutter process. Like King said, he had this solo guy. He had a group, uh, he had a female artist, and then he was looking for a, for a duo. And we both were thinking we were vying for solo spots at the time. Yeah. I think that's old news to some people. And uh, so he got me a gig uh, at Sony ATV Publishing as a writer for, I think it was like, like $400 or $600 a, a, a month. Man. Yeah. Getting a lot more now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we kind of so John and June, uh, Johnny Cash and, and his wife June were friends with my wife from back in Oklahoma, and called and gave us a cabin to live in up on a mountain outside town. So I'm thinking he goes, no rent, we'll just do it for free while you kind of see if you if you're gonna survive here. Yeah. And uh, uh, so we had six hundred dollars a month and free rent. So. I was motivated to write songs. Yeah. So sure. the first, and the first two guys he introduced me to were Kicks and, and a buddy of his, Don Cook. But he took us individually in, into his office and played me Kicks' stuff. He says, "What do you think of that?" I thought it was it's progressive by country standards at the time. I said, "It's kind of got a got a cool, cool West Coast vibe." And then he, he played some stuff that I had written to Kicks, and I think we were both kind of going, "I'm not sure what we're listening to." <laughs> or, you know, I'm thinking he was putting us together to rock. Sure enough, he was because he knew that the, the cornerstone for you know survival in, in any business on a legitimate basis is being able to write songs and come up with your own material. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, it worked. Odd enough, I've told this story and Kicks will appreciate it. But Kicks and Don Cook, our first producer, have been writing for a long time. Don is a successful songwriter too. And. I had never covered it like that, like showed up, get your, your pen and paper out and write. I, I remember we wrote Brand New Mails first, and then the second one, or is it the opposite? No, you're right. Yeah, and then working on my next Broken Hearts, which is a country show, pretty simple, straightforward. But I remember going home and telling Janine, I guess I was having a low blood sugar moment, I said, I don't think we're going to make it here. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'm just, you know, yeah, it's just me, you know, Mr. Negative, I don't know, that didn't sound like a hit. Sure enough, they both became number one hits right after that. So. Yeah. And did you, do you ever have, well, I mean, I guess that probably answers it, but one, one of the things I was really curious about was when you first got together and made that first album just become such a smash, like immediately out of nowhere. Did, how did that feel after, you know, like in the 80s, you know, you, you had some successes, but, yeah. you know, it's a lot of hard work and not, not as much of a reward as, like, immediately four number one singles and a huge album. Well, there's, there's nothing like failure to motivate you to try to succeed if you don't give up. <laughs> and and I, I say this all the time, even tell my kids this, there's, 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 you know, hunger is a terrific motivator. Uh, so we, uh, we, were, we were motivated. To, to work at it and, and don't know, really you know, 
didn't know what to quit, still don't. <laughs> Ronnie really, he sang, just put some serious fire into that Randy Man song. You know, I was excited about the song. Um, and he, he came up with the, the first I saw the light was baptized, those, those lines, which were unique because he had not been in Nashville and drained himself of all his ideas. You know, he still had some unique melodies and whatever. So when he first threw that out, I think Changed Man was the, was the hook that he had. And I suggested maybe Branding Man. But, that, but the, the genesis of that was really different and, and that was him. And, and then the, the vocal on it was just, he, you know, he sang, that's when I first realized, man, this guy's really got some, he can, he's got some chops. But you have, that's part of having a group around you. Because I remember when we played that for the Arista team, you know, their promotion people and whatever, they're all just going, holy crap. But they're not going, holy crap, because they have to, like, I've seen that at record labels before too. Yeah. They're, they're kind of going, holy crap, that's so good. You know, what are we going to do with this? It wasn't like that. It was like they're jumping up and down, running around the room. I'm like, man, okay, this is exciting. You know, we, time. Yeah. It, was it was a brand new label with brand new young, young people. And it was like being at a high school football game. Everything we all did, even in, yeah. in the office, we go hang out up there, you know, just show up and hang out what we do. We, We'd end up talking and hanging with somebody, doing promo, and uh, it was it was really a fun time. I don't I don't know that that we were ever this is making a big. Uh, I think everyone just kind of kind of baby stepped into into the process because we we did that record as as a almost a demo in the Sony demo studio for like thirty five grand or something. Not a thing doing that. We just cut it like we cut stuff. Yeah. The musicianship and the vocals. Yeah. 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 Carry it. it was not it was, like a big budget. No, it, it was raw. There was no, like, we didn't have time or, or the budget. In fact, we didn't even know what a budget was. I don't know <laughs> who we right were watching it. Somebody was paying for it. Anyway, yeah. we ended up coming up with, what, 10, 11, 12 songs? Mm -hmm. And uh, the first four were, were number one hits at, at radio, which, you know, the commercial market propels you forward. We were short on, we were short on belief individually and as a team. I mean, we, really? I don't think either one of us really believed in the concept of putting us together, not knowing each other. At, at our age, we were adults at the time, not 20-year-old kids, and the chance that this is going to run 20 years just didn't make any sense. So how old were you at that time? I was 36, and Ronnie was 38. Wow. So you don't. You're don't not do gonna, math on that. Yeah, you're not going to go. Yeah, you're not going to go. I'm, not, yeah, not, go I'm very slow anyway. Yeah, you're not going to go. Well, it was 30 over the record. They have the career <laughs> we did at that point. So we're thinking, okay, we had a hit. This could go a year or two or whatever. But the, the point I was going to make was I really felt like when we made that record, we were really having some fun and cutting stuff we wanted to cut. The record company wasn't saying you got to do this and you got to do that. And no, nobody came in and told us what to do. We were just kind of turned loose. That's another thing that kind of freaked us out. Yeah. We thought maybe they don't care. We weren't worried about how loud the guitars were, or the solos, or anything. We did cut it like a demo. It's like this is what we like, and so I think we were we were good with the record. We didn't feel like we'd done it for reasons other than hell. I don't know you, but. Let's make some music, let's do the best we can, which also has some good energy, because I think both of us were trying to show the other one we did have some jobs. 
you know, yeah. whatever way it was, we had some knowledge of what we were doing, and we were learning about each other, our history, everything about it. There was a cool kind of energy that's, and I, I think that's why we survived on stage, too. I think it was, it was a bit of a NASCAR race. You know, people figure there's got to be a good wreck here at some point. <laughs> you know, we keep watching, you know, and, and uh, anyway, it, it worked out for quite a while. And when did you guys first perform together? Did you cut the record first before doing any live gigs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we performed at a, uh, you know, the record labels, once they sign an act, they, they'll do a split showcase. So they push a little club downtown and you know, people are doing it. And we rehearsed, you know, for what, three or four days. <laughs> yeah. And ran out and seven or eight songs, baby. Threw a band together and went and banged it out. Yeah. And did you find that what was what was the bigger challenge initially? Or did you just kind of we, it sounds like you were just kind of taking every step as it we did every, every I mean, and nothing's changed today. Yeah. And, and I wasn't that worried about it. It was just a, it was in a bar, you know, at down at Ace of Clubs, if I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a little bar, everybody's packed in, everybody's fired up, everybody's half drunk, and uh, they were curious, and I think we did as good as we could. Probably shrugged our shoulders and went, that's about the best we can do, considering right. we've never done it, we haven't really rehearsed. You know, these are new songs, and uh, we'll see what happens. We're thinking it's going to be a train wreck from day one, and, and again, I'm not sure that that's changed. Yeah. Well, it's I'm not so sure, but <laughs> stumble through the system and you don't know how to end up here. I don't mean, don't play and just keep going. And throughout the nineties, you had so many successful records. Um, what are some of your favorite deep cuts from albums in the nineties, like tracks that people wouldn't hear on greatest hits compilations? Mm. I mean, you know, I was always attracted and, and still am to like really kind of more traditional country. There was one of the first records called I've Got a Lot to Learn. Gosh, I was just going to yeah. say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When it comes. But we fought so hard thinking and it would put it out as a single. Of course, the radio wouldn't wouldn't go for it. They went for it, but not. They had to work Did for we? It. Was that a single? I, I think so. Yeah. I know no, we played no, it a lot. I don't think it was ever a single. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, that's it. Those, those kinds of songs. Yeah. I've Got a Lot to Learn. Uh, we still play, um, I had a song called, and Ronnie sang most of the, the singles, so, you know, when we do the show, I'll pull out some things sometimes. Uh, uh, she, she likes to get out of town. A guy came up to me in the airport the other day, he goes, hey man, I just saw y'all. He said, I've been wanting to see you ever since. I thought I'd never get the chance. He goes, one of my favorite songs, she likes to get out of town. He goes, I never thought I'd hear you guys play it. You played it live at one of these shows we did recently, so. It's kind of fun to hear, but um, yeah, I think we had, um, you know, there was some like um, "Long Goodbye." That was a single, though, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. There was yeah. another song was on that. Good. It was kind of like that on that album. I remember it was kind of a more contemporary. Yeah, kind of sounding stuff. I don't know. We need to go back and listen. We we were in uh, Fredericksburg shooting a video for something. We had a few albums out at the time, and. Uh, Ronnie and I had to kill some time in between shots on this video. And we went in this little gift shop thing, you know, where they sell turquoise rings and that kind of stuff. And they recognized us and, and put on one of our albums. And I looked at him and went, 
that's me singing, but I swear I don't remember that song. <laughs> and, and we sat out on a bench and listened to that whole album. I'm like, God, do you remember that? And he goes, no. I go, did you write that? He goes, I don't know. It's, a, wow. it's so funny. It just blurs. So it does. It blurs by you. And we were, we were just going so fast. It's like write songs, record songs, go shoot videos, photo shoots, you know, albums coming out, award show, award show, award show. And, it's just like a roller coaster. It is. You just turn around and go, whoa, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> and as such accomplished songwriters, do you ever, does it ever kind of, you know, do you ever get resentful of the fact that your cover of My Maria is such a, such like a big, you know, if you go on Spotify, for example, that's like in your top five. I'll let Ronnie answer songs. that. <laughs> no, not resentful in, in any way. You know, going in, I was I was a bit apprehensive because we had I, I had never you done a cover a cover song. <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> yeah. And me, the the lyrics were written kind of in that the free form, you know, uh, rock way. I want to say what impressionistic yeah. way. So there was. They. You know, here, well, yeah, well, BW had yeah. written it. So, you know, I, I, I kept going back, going, what's it saying? I don't know what it says, you know, but that's that's fine. But I've been getting also input from record labels, stuff like that. I would take songs in and they would go, I don't think the audience is going to understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of about the vibe. You don't have to really spell out a story. True. So, here yeah. in Nashville, in the country, country music genre, obviously, you. You, you're, you're expected to write in, uh, <coughs> what do I say? Story literal terms. Very, very literal and, and descriptive <coughs> you know, stories and yeah. stuff. And so, My Maria was a, 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 a departure from that. Yeah. And uh, I was apprehensive. I mean, I think it's really what you bring to the song musically. We both, yeah. we both sang the song in bars coming up. And yeah. We, and in BW and loved it. And I think. And Cook actually came up with the idea, and I'm just when he brought it up, I'm like, oh man, Ronnie can sing the shit out of that. And but then we had we had written everything up until that point, and Ronnie's like, I don't want to start doing cover songs, and I'm like, I get it, but it's not really taking care of business or something that everybody knows. You know, it was kind of a regional hit more, and it was. It really fell into our whole vibe of. What we were doing, our our image and whatever, I, I just it just seemed like a maybe a good call. For what it's worth, we, we always had this visual thing of a like southwestern imagery, and, you know, out west in the desert and things like that. So it, it fit right in with that. And I had gone to school in Abilene, Texas, and that's when it was I, I was aware of it, and listened to it all the time. That's a great. I think short answer to your question is we both still love playing it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great melody, and you and guys really, do a better version than the BW version, so... This sounds kind of whatever, but i got to admit, even playing now, you know, in Vegas and whatever, you look down at the set list and what's coming up next, and it always kind of gives me a smile. I still like playing these songs, singing these songs, I feel well, that's like... That's always I don't know, what you, you want to hear, isn't it? Whatever we came up with is kind of worn pretty well. For it's a long night if you don't like what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So at the end of the 90s, like, so, cause obviously you had a lot to overcome with, with the, the amount of work that you put in in the 80s and then finally you get all this huge success throughout the 90s. And end of the 90s, it's probably still like a massive seller album with a tightrope in 99. And that, that was like 
not an album that stacked up like compared to the other albums, which are all multi-platinum. And I read that you guys thought about you know maybe calling it a day then, but you persevered on advice of the label, and then you had another decade full of like really successful albums. I know I look at it as a period where we were kind of left unkept. <laughs> the, everyone at the label, it was in the process of being sold or absorbed by Sony. This was Air, so that we were on. It was, being, it was absorbed by Sony. Tell so you would, you would go back up to that level we talked about that was so raw, raw, fun, and open. And, and in the beginning, and every door would be shut in the promo guy's office because they're all in there, like really looking for jobs. So that so it all it all changed, and so we got we got scattered and, and, and uh, unfocused. It, you know, we lost that 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 back team support that we felt like we we needed. Our records we had. Ronnie had been with um, Scott Hendricks, who is at Warner Brothers now. Yes, Scott. Yes, Scott. Was. Came with him. Don Cook had come with me, like he was talking about. And we had Don and I worked together a lot. So Scott was kind of Ronnie's guy in our whole four-man process of, of making music. And Scott got a job at Capitol Records. Was hired on Capitol. So Ronnie was kind of lost with, you know, back with me and Don and. And he sort of didn't have a guy at that point, and uh, went with Byron Gallimore, who I also loved, was producing Tim and Faith's records and stuff at the time. But I was I was searching to, to yeah. like not, do not upgrade the sound. Yeah. I mean, technology had, mm -hmm. had moved forward too, and we we'd been cutting basically you know analog records and trying to trying to move forward that way. And Byron was making great sounding records at the time. Yeah. And, uh, the songwriting thing was always frustrating because we you hear all these people all over town getting pitched songs, and we would never get pitched songs. And I thought, well, why, was, why was that? I, I think it was a part. Of, I don't know, but I, I mean, one one theory is that maybe it was a bit of a, a, an internal conspiracy to make us write all our stuff. You know, writers just thinking we're writing our own songs, so they're more inclined to that. pitch them to George Strait and Tim and Faith and people yeah. that weren't writing. Them. So that's, that's just it's the, a great yeah. thing that you guys have written. So. Yeah, the politics of, of, of songwriting. You know, I saw a special on the Everly Brothers uh, uh, just a few weeks back. They said that once they lost the lease at Boudreaux, the whole thing kind of caved, caved in on them. They didn't have that songwriting support like that. So, I don't know, we, we were our own songwriters. That, and one of the biggest songs after so after that period where which you overcame, one of the biggest songs after that was um, Only in America. Um, and interestingly, you know, that was used for different political campaigns. Um, that, that really shows you that's an amazing that's an amazing thing, like to to write a song that people of different beliefs can like identify with. Is that a song that makes you proud? Is that something that makes you proud? Sure. It's funny, uh, Don Cook and I actually rode in my farm four-wheeler one day and just had this patriotic conversation. I said, okay, let's write that. You know, you don't have to... It was interesting because 9-11 came after that, you know. It doesn't have to be some major... A war doesn't have to be going on to talk about loving your country, you know. And so we did. We just kind of got corny and we had it about half done. And it was funny because Joe Galani... Uh, came back to RCA after Arista was consumed by RCA and met with Ronnie and I and asked us if we, because we were talking about, man, are we done or what, you know, and 
that we run out of gas, you know, or we creatively bankrupt, as someone said. And uh, Joe says, man, make a record for me. He goes, please, I just got back to RCA. He goes, I love you guys. And and he pitched us his song. We, we had a bunch of songs that on that album, but he pitched us his song, Nothing About You. So he said, would you please come in and cut this for me? And we go, yeah, that's a cool song. And uh, so I... I Went up to my being the songwriter or I am ran up to my uh, hotel room and finished only in America and came down in our dressing room before we flew. We were in Vegas, flew back to Nashville to record and played it for Ronnie. And he said, "Man, it's better than anything I got right now." I said, "Well, you want to sing it?" He goes, "Yeah, sure." And um, so we cut those two songs and "Nothing About You" was six weeks at number one, and uh, and then. Only in America was the second, and when 9/11 happened, it, it kind of took my life with its own as well. Yeah, and so, so much, so much more success, and right up to today, where you guys have just released a new album and collaborated with a bunch of different artists on it. Um, what was that experience like um, to revisit old songs as well? It's fun. It was easy. And how, <laughs> and how did it come about? And how did you choose the artists? Our our manager actually brought us the idea, and there were some artists. Um, before he actually brought us the whole concept, Luke Combs had sent a, a posted Randy Mann, like he was playing acoustic guitar with two of his band guys. And, uh, and Ronnie actually sent me Casey Musgraves, who's doing Neon Man. And our manager said, I think there could be a project here. There's a lot of young acts that, you know, really respect you guys. And we're like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then he came back a few weeks later with the whole kind of lineup. That was that, and it's you know it's interesting because we were always I mean you're always nervous and desperate is kind of a good word, but when you go to record a song that you've written, especially a song that you really think's a hit, you don't want to screw it up, and there's a lot of pushing and pulling and doing things and working with it, and taking them on, and you know overdubs and just trying to get it right. And we really didn't have that pressure here. We wanted it to be great, but Dan Huff, he makes things great off the cuff to start out with. And the other thing, there were already hits. Yeah, you know, you know that the people who love you don't have, Well, you don't know that, but at least that part's been done. Yeah. You know, these songs have been successful, so now it's, let's have some fun and cut these things and meet some new people and see what that's about. It was just a different kind of experience, which wasn't, didn't have the pressure factor to me. That's great. Well, I've got two more questions for you. Um, the first is, because this is a series called Greatest Artists and Musicians of All Time, um, who in the country, you know, world, did, made you guys want to become musicians? Um, who, who are some of your favorite artists of all time? And then also not country artists. Yeah, I'm go with Merle Haggard. Uh, and listened a, a lot to Emily Harris and her band. They were really innovative, kind of rock oriented. They, they took country to a really cool place, I thought, really. Uh, and Emily, I'm sure, and Merle. And then on, on the other uh, end of the spectrum, it would be like you know, the Stones, Clapton, Bonnie Ray. Tulsa really on Tulsa was, so they were bringing people through like Cocker and all this stuff, Denny Cordell, Shelter Records. So they're, 
they're really uh, turned up there. Bill Russell is factor. way underrated. Oh, yeah. Way underrated. Yeah. He is brilliant. Yeah. I think it, from a contemporary aspect, we have very much almost identical influences. Now, he was he was around Tulsa when all that was going on and everything, but I was totally into Woods Allen, Ramsey Lamb. Russell was one of my musical heroes. I had all his music. John Van Denny sent me down and then tell me about how he signed out uh, Woods Allen Ramsey. Oh, really? Yeah, it's all yeah. cool. The yeah. inside sort of. Bust your groove, but it's cool. But as a kid, uh, Johnny Cash and Hank Williams Sr., you know, were really, that's, and Roger Miller, I just, I can just remember those, those are the guys, those are the songs when I was 10, 11 years old that I was learning all those songs. And, and again, I think both of us, you know, I love, uh, I grew up working for my dad in the shop, you know, working on trucks and stuff, and all those truck drivers, Merle Haggard was the Lord. Haggard and Jones, but more Haggard, and we certainly had, and those guys were super cool for me. You know, bulldozer operators and, and big truck drivers, and they all worshipped Haggard. And when I got here, I really had a better understanding of just how good he was, you know, was, and how cool he was. But it was all kind of West Coast stuff, and, and again, for me, Texas and whatever, we were, we were on that side of the Mississippi. It wasn't so much about the Grand Ole Opry or whatever, as far as how I was influenced. You know, I just, we didn't get that radio signal. We were influenced more, less by, I guess, Appalachian music, yeah. banjos and fiddles, and, 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 and Buck Owens and Telecasters right. that were turned up and popping it, pushing it as far as they could in country on, on the rock side. And that helped you guys develop your, your own sound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in, in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, they have the Louisiana Hayride. So when Cash kicked out the lights on at the Grand Ole Opry and they banned him for a while, you know, he went to the Hayride. And Hank Williams died, you know, living in Shreveport. Uh, Johnny Horton, I mean, and Elvis, you know, was shunned at the Hayride at, at the Opry. He wound up on the Hayride. You know, so it was kind of. It was kind of opera light, you know, but at the same time, it was, a more progressive. It was and they didn't, uh, they didn't care if you raised hell, you know, it wasn't, like, it really wasn't built on that, that kind of bluegrass appellation sort of mentality. Of, Jerry Lee Lewis was welcome. He was, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and grew up not too far in Faraday. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to be included in this series, and uh, congratulations on such a wonderful career. Thanks. Pretty crazy. She's weird. <laughs>